Amen. Remain standing for the reading of the text this morning from the 13th chapter of Matthew. We will now begin through that series of parables of this chapter, which was known as the Kingdom Parables. Last time we looked at the, the, the why Jesus spoke in parables, and now we come to this first and well-known parable. And this is one of the two that Jesus actually interprets and gives an explanation for. And because of that, uh, this is very common ground for us. And so we want to make sure that we uh, don't just dismiss this in our minds and that we can take heed to these matters and that we don't easily and quickly skip over it because of its familiarity, something we are often prone to do. I will begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 13 through verse 8, and then I'm going to go down to verses 18 through 23, which will be our focus in that interpretation. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on the stony places, where they did not have much dirt, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. When the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Dropping down to verse 18. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word, and we're thankful, Lord, that you interpreted it for us. We do understand that we still cannot receive it or understand it apart from your spirit illuminating it to us and giving us the understanding and the sense of which he intends for us to have it. And so we do pray for the freshness upon the Spirit today, upon this word, and as it's preached, that you would move our hearts, and that our hearts would, in the receiving of the word, worship you. And we pray that you would be glorified in our midst as your word goes forth. We pray now it would be multiplied. Lord, we are very cognizant, particularly in the light of this parable, that when the word is going out, that there are invisible forces at work every time. And so we do pray that you would keep the enemy away from our hearts, from snatching this word before it can lodge. We pray that you would drive out all of those areas that would squelch it, and that our hearts would be fertile, and that you would plow up the fallow ground and 
make it ready to receive the word so that the word can take root and produce fruit unto the glory of our God. So we commit these things now to you in Jesus name. Amen. May be seated. The kingdom parables are given to us in this proximity. Uh, Remember how Matthew arranges things, not necessarily chronologically, but theologically. He has just been working in two chapters and revealing to us uh, these different responses of how people had responded to Jesus and Jesus' response back to them in that context. And the kingdom parables will help instruct us even further some of the reasons why people respond this way to the Word. The kingdom parables also helps explain the very nature of the kingdom. So when the greatest preacher with the most perfect sermon and no, nothing in his character that would cause a stumbling in himself would preach the Word, the Lord Jesus Himself, and people did not receive it in just the complete totality that we would have expected, He now begins to explain those matters of the nature of his kingdom and how these things should be understood because they will also happen to his followers, his disciples, and they are carried with great relevance right up to the very day in which we are. Before us, we have the first of those seven parables, and it's the parable of the soils, very well known, but it shows us the various responses to the word of God in four comparisons. But before I get into those four analogies, uh, let me give two general statements regarding this parable. The first one is this. The problem with the reception of the word was not with the seed that was sown. It was not with the message. And the second general principle that we can glean from this is... The problem was not with the messenger. Now, there can be times when the messenger is the problem, but here is not the case. The emphasis here is the problem is not the seed that was sown, nor is it the one who is sowing the seed, but the problem has to do with the heart and where that seed lodges. So the emphasis is the heart. The imagery is one in which a sower goes out in those ancient days with a sack of seed in his hand, and he is going to the field that has been prepared for the the seed to take root. And he goes toward the field, and as he is walking, he's going by this very well-worn footpath on which he is continuing now. And then he goes on this hardened path until he gets to the, the field which is prepared for the seed, for the sowing. Along the way, you would see some of that seed perhaps spill out of his sack and off to the road or by the wayside, and others of it would spill on soil not yet designed for him to sow the seed, perhaps, or even some that wasn't quite broken up all of the way. And we have these four places now, these four analogies. And the first place that the parable then brings our attention to is the seed that fell by the wayside. Perhaps the seed was spilling out of the sack before it was intended to go out, or perhaps it was uh, something. But what what we find here is seed was just falling by the way. It was not in the fertile uh, field ahead of them. And this is the one who hears the word, but he doesn't understand it. 
The word did go out. It did fall on hearers. And you have to understand all of these analogies are ones in which the seed did fall upon hearers. People that heard. But something else was going on that no one could see. When the word goes forth, there is always, invariably, an invisible force at work. The word of God, the Bible, is not benign. It is a living word. It is the only one like it ever. And every time the word is shared, preached, taught, conversed over, thought through, discussed. There is something living going on, but in and beyond it, it is something very invisible that is going on, something that your eyes can't see. You'll never prove it by the manner of measurement. But it's always going on. That's why the Apostle could say that when the Gospel is going forth, it is to those who are being saved, a great savor, a great fragrance. But to those who are perishing, it is a stench. But the one truth is when the Word goes forth and the Gospel goes out, it never leaves the person the same. It either hardens or it draws. But it is not benign. The first invisible force that we see at work here is clearly the devil and his dominion or his minions who are at work as they pluck up the seed that does fall before it can even take root. And when the word of God is preached, when it's taught, even right now, his forces are at work. You can't see it, but they're here. They would love to be here. They would love to distort it. They would love to pluck out. They would love to take away before the word even has root. But there is another, there is another invisible force that is also quite necessary for the word to be understood. In and of itself, the word cannot be understood because of our fallen depravity. Because of our posture and our faculties in which we were born in sin has prevented us from understanding the Word so clearly illustrated in the second chapter of of the epistle to Corinth. The Holy Spirit is necessary to enable men to understand the Word and without the Holy Spirit they cannot understand it. These things are spiritually discerned. You might be able to understand some of the academic aspects or some of the intellectual aspects, and you might be able to understand some of the theological points that we're talking about in understanding in the heart. Scorners or doubters or rationalists or humanists or the proud, there are many categories in which this is true for men. But the Word itself is living, and there are spiritual and visible forces that are always at work around the Word as it is being discussed and taught and preached and shared, and the Gospel is is given. You ever shared the Gospel with someone, and immediately as 
you are opening up the word of life to someone, all of a sudden uh, a phone call comes or the doorbell rings or the phone rings or something happens. There's a distraction there. An interruption, a diversion. And you have to be aware of that in your own life because in your own life there can be a demonic world who will do everything to keep that word that day from lodging in your heart. There's going to be distractions that interrupt you and diversions and and. Interruptions. You've got a busy schedule to keep and you have to keep your mind occupied and you're going to have to pray against those matters. The second place the seed fell was upon the stony grounds. And this is not like the church that we have to, to dig up and around here. This is not meaning that it was filled with gravel. This was not merely just things within the soil. But it really is detailing a very shallow earth that was really over a bedrock. So when the sun comes up, the very shallow earth transmits the earth or the, the heat of the sun right to the bedrock. And over days, the bedrock begins to warm up the earth. And it's a very warm hotbed, if you will, for the seed to quickly germinate. And so when the seed falls upon this very shallow earth, it does very quickly germinate. But as it begins to develop, it has nowhere for the roots to grow and nowhere for it to go down. And, and because of that, it can't get the moisture it needs. And it's just in this hot soil. And so it quickly, as soon as it comes up, it, it withers away. There are two characteristics that you ought to note here. It says when those are like people who heard the word, And two things, immediately receive it and with joy. Immediately and with joy. These are people who have heard the word and there is a joyful and emotional response to the reception of the word immediately. There are those who do respond to the word, but on a very shallow level. There's not a lot of... There's not any good ground underneath. It's the ground underneath is not broken up. It's not something that can take root. Roots are very essential to the growth of a plant. That's why the Apostle Paul would speak. And he would say, rooted in Christ. Root deeply in Him. Drive the root down and and grow those roots deeply and so that the sap can come up through and plenish. And we have these illustrations throughout Scripture, whether it be the, the branch and the vine and the branches and, and John or some of the Pauline passages where we're required to be rooted or you have the two olive trees but the root remains and you can still do something with that root. Recently, I had the opportunity to visit a graveside of Jonathan Edwards, who was used mightily of God in the 1730s and 1740s to lead what we have now called the Great Revival or the Great Awakening in that period of time. During that time, he had to analyze what was going on. There was a lot of of criticism Because there was a lot of emotional uh, responses during the time of the Great Awakening. 
There was even some kind of frenzied responses and even some kinds of bizarre behavior that went on. And here was Jonathan Edwards having to discern and analyze what was going on. Is this truly the work of God? And yet there was some, where, some elements that you just could not deny that the, the first great awakening was certainly a movement of the Spirit. But he had to write on this because you had some of the old light Presbyterians. Some of those old light Presbyterians haven't changed to this day. And they completely discounted the work of the Holy Spirit and the efficacy of what was going on in that particular era. And they were very critical over that. And in response, Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise concerning religious affections to explain what was going on. In that treatise, he said, whenever there is an authentic work of God and the Spirit going on, there will always be, or at least Satan always raises up, an imposture to look very similar to it like, like it on the surface. It is a way of diversion to discount or throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you will. And so he wrote on this, he says, no, there is truly a work of God going on here, yet at the same time, there are many impostors coming up that are feigning the work of God that are truly the work of the enemy. About a hundred years later, there was another great work of the Holy Spirit that we refer to as the Second Great Awakening, which began somewhere around 1790 rose to probably climax between 1800 and 1820. And there was another man whose ministry really became to more prominence after that, around the 1830s, whose philosophy of evangelism was largely to stir up the emotions of people in order for them to come to Christ. Many of you know already who I'm referring to as we refer to Charles Finney. His ministry was in those 1830s and after or so when he was mostly at work. He is credited with about a half a million converts that came to Christ under his ministry. Many of you know some of his techniques to stir up the emotions and to play on people's emotions, whether it be the guilt manipulation, whether it be some kind of methods. What he was about is stirring and affecting the people's emotions in order to get the gospel into their heart. And that is seed on stony ground. In fact, within 10 years, the majority, the vast majority of those Half a million converts could not be found. Very few true converts. Oh, there's a lot of emotional responses. There was a lot of immediate response with joy. There was, but they were shallow. And it wasn't up to the messenger to create those emotional responses. And even today, we have evangelistic philosophies that focus on playing on emotions rather than the true conversion of the Spirit, which the man of God has no control over except to be faithful to the Word of God preached, no matter how the circumstances may fall. There's lots going on today in churches with 
either on the one hand, the guilt manipulation and the emotional frenzies, or on the other hand, the, the inflaming the emotions in such a degree that it divorces it from the doctrine and it's all in an emotional experience. Or playing upon the fears without the promises. Now I'm not here to say at all that when one comes to Christ that is an emotionless experience. In fact, it is inclusive of the entirety of man. Our emotions are involved. Our minds are involved. Our wills are involved. But it has to come from a new heart that the Spirit gives us an understanding. But when the Word does not have root in the deeper aspect of one's life, it will not yield the fruit. In verse 21, it tells us that there is going to be a test that comes. A test because of the Word of God itself, or persecution because of the Word. But there will be a test in a new convert's life that will test the rootedness. God will prove our faith and our Christian character. I can personally say that around every major decision I have made in my life, in my Christian life, I have been greatly tested on that very decision. Whether it be committing my life to Christ and coming under His Lordship completely, God tested me. Whether it be in my calling to the ministry, oh, God really tested me. Or my decision to plant a church in Georgia right out of seminary, God tested me. Or whether the decision to move up here and plant another church in the ministry in Tennessee, God tested me in that decision. Around every decision to move forward in the kingdom, I have been tested. We've had people who move here in order to forward, to advance their own Christian lives and their sanctification, and to, to be a part of a work that is moving forward in the kingdom work, in the kingdom service, and every one of them have been tested in some way or another. Tests will come because of the Word and because of the advancement of the Word. It's like when Nehemiah, as I had referenced in the prayer time this morning, he goes and he desires to see, the, in effect, the kingdom advanced. And he goes back to Jerusalem and he comes with all of this. You know, on the one hand, he, he is well equipped. <laughs> on the one hand, he is sent with blessing. And then he gets there and Tobiah and Sambalat in making up lies and begin to discourage and begin to thwart what he or attempting to thwart what he's trying to do. A great distraction. And in our minds, it seems like uh, it is inhibiting the efficiency in which the kingdom could be working. And yet, in the end, we do know the end of the story where it did not persuade or dissuade Nehemiah, and they could look back and look at what great things God had done in such a short amount of time, relatively speaking. It 
It is to be expected that you're going to be tested when the Word of God begins to take root and develop in your own life. And that testing is good for you, and that testing will prove you, it will strengthen you, it will bring you into a deeper rootedness in Christ. Because a shallow Christianity cannot endure, it will not be fruitful. The seed that fell by the wayside, the seed that fell on the stony places, neither produced the fruit, neither were true, genuine changed lives in the gospel. And then the third place, the third analogy here, is that seed, some seed fell among the thorns. Now the, the, the implication here is that the ground seems to be fertile enough to produce uh, a plant that could grow up in it. The problem does not seem to be with the ground in this case. The problem seems to be with what is allowed to grow next to it in the ground, or you have these thorns and weeds and brambles that are allowed to go on while the plant grows for a while, so likewise do the thorns right alongside it. And yet the plants that are growing up that have not been weeded out and cultivated from the soil, they begin to grow up and compete for the growth of the same area. And eventually they choke out the seed or the Word of God that it cannot produce the fruit. You ever been in a place where you see the weeds are so overgrown in someone's garden that the garden itself doesn't produce the fruit? Have you ever seen where something's just carelessly maintained or really not maintained and, and then it just the, the, the trees become unfruitful? The seed can grow for a little bit, for a little while, but the other plants around it compete and eventually squelch and choke. And the thorns or that which chokes out the Word of God. They're referred to in two ways here. First of all, the, the thorns are, are the cares of the world. And second of all, they're the deceitfulness of riches. And these are the distractions in life that choke out the Word. In and of themselves, they're not necessarily wrong. These are the things that Jesus referred to already back in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. These were the worries over your daily provision, over your retirement, the anxieties in life and making a living or keeping up with your health or who's going to take care of you when you're old. Those worries that end up taking precedence over the kingdom. Those procrastinations. How many times have you told God, in one way or another. Hold on. I'll be back in just a minute. <sighs> Hold on, God. I'll be back in just a minute. Is that not what the man said? Oh, we'll follow you, Lord. But let me first go and bury my dead. Or let me first take care of it. Hold on, Lord. I'll be back in just a minute. Jesus already spoke about that. Or I will pray in a few minutes or read my Bible after I f finish checking up with the, the world news and, 
and my social media accounts and finding out what my friends will do. After I do all those other things, then I'll, I'll get to it. Oh, those procrastinations. Those procrastinations. The cares of the world. The deceitfulness of the riches. Life seems to be going well and we don't really see a big need for God. So your time is spent better, seemingly, doing other things. Or I would just rather enjoy doing other things. Your relationship to God and your service to Him is not a priority over all the other things in life. You're not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and your life. The cares, the deceitfulness, the lies in which the, the riches of this world will lie to you. Oh, it's a, you can get to that later. Come enjoy this for a minute. In fact, Luke's gospel on this very passage this says the pleasures of life. So many Christians are in pursuit of the pleasures of life, the experiences, the enjoyment, and the entertainment, and in and of themselves, no harm oftentimes. But you have to be so careful with life because these pleasantries can choke out that which is really important, life itself. Rather than getting into an argument or a particular discussion about the rightness of this or the wrongness of that or the this or that, da, 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 you might want to just step back and ask, well, how much time am I spending? Is this taking a priority over the kingdom of God in my life? Is this squelching out my fruitfulness? It might be something very good. It might be an activity that in its right setting and its right moderation could be something very good. But, but now, it could be something that is choking out the fruitfulness of the Word in your life. Folks, it is a fight to keep on course. Especially in a society, in a culture filled with so many brambles. Restaurants. Sporting events. And, and help me, did I not hear that there's now going to be a summer national or, or professional football league because we can't wait for the season to begin in the fall? So a whole other football league is being established because we just got to have our football all the time. Movies. These things are offered to us all day long, 24 hours a day, and the options are not letting up, and the exposure continues to, to breed. And the problem is almost in the innocence of the thing. But it competes for the same ground as the word in your life. It's got to be cultivated out of the soil. You've got to weed your garden. You've got to take care of the soil. You've got to make sure it's good. And, and you've got to be cautious here. It's not necessarily the, the things in life that are absolutely known to be wrong that can be the most damaging. Sometimes it's the subtlety, subtleties of life 
may be good, but the abundance of it can drown or choke out the fruitfulness of the word. There is an author that you may be familiar with the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Well, there is a type of soil that's being referred to here, at least the type of the heart. And the heart has allowed these other things to to compete with the word. And so the person can potentially be one that comes to church every Lord's Day and sits under the, the reading and preaching of the Scripture, but the heart has not been changed. It's not a fruitful heart. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and the salt has lost its savor. It's no good for anything but to be cast out and thrown under, well, you know, NaCl, sodium chloride, um, it doesn't lose its molecular structure. But what happens in those salt mines around the Dead Sea and when they would extract it, it was often mixed with a gypsum, which is white, and sometimes you just couldn't see the difference. And it was often due to all the impurities that would come into it that would make salt lose its savor. And therefore, if it has so much impurity that the salt is no longer saltiness, is no longer good, then just to throw it out. Make your roof repair with it. Throw it out to cover up the the rubbish in the street, but it's not good for what it's supposed to be good for. I don't know if there's any kind of application to the Himalayan salt that we're all getting here now. Filled with so many other good minerals, right? But it's perhaps losing its saltiness. That's another point. Folks, be careful. Not to let your saltiness be so mixed. In fact, not to be mixed at all. And the culture has so much to offer you. Even so many good things or things that are not so bad or things that... But boy, Satan has a way to distract you. To interrupt you. To get your eyes off the ball. To focus more of attention and let the Word of God not take root in your life. And to... To bring forth fruit. I think there's an application here even for individual Christians who tr- whose heart is truly changed and whose life has been fruitful. Because there are times when we recognize that our priorities have been misplaced and things have not been where they should be with the Lord or His kingdom. And, and that's a time if perhaps even this morning if the Spirit of God is putting His finger on that, yes, that's true right now in my life. I've got so many things going on. I'm too busy for God. And now let the Spirit of God take that and clean house and get the weeds out of your heart so that you can be fruitful once again. I think there's some application, even the Christians, when really so far we've talked about three kinds of receivers and none of them are true Christians. Which brings us to the conclusion. There is a good soil which is an antithesis to all the other three and it's only that good soil in verse 23, that is the kind of soil where the seed can germinate, it can take root, it can grow, it's not competing for other interests, and it can flourish into a fruitful tree or bush or plant. 
And that is truly the only character for Christians. That's a true Christian. See, a true Christian must be one who is a a fruit-producing Christian. That's why Jesus says that you did not choose me, but I chose you that you may go forth and bear fruit. It's the reason that He saves you is to be a fruitful Christian. Fruitful in the sense that He saves you to be a worshiper. He saves you to be a servant. He saves you to be active about the things that He loves. And what we've been describing throughout are the variations of how the Word of God is received. Some just don't even understand it. Because there's visible forces at play. Some receive it with great joy emotionally and immediately springs up, but there's no root there and shallowly it falls away. And and others, they're always, the ground is being competed with something else that ends up choking out so that it's never fruitful. We can easily see how number one and number two take root and fall away. We can see their falling away or just their unrootedness. Number three is a lot more difficult to discern. But the judge of the whole matter is this fruit bearing. Does it produce the fruit? There are different degrees of fruit bearing, some 30, some 60, some 100, but is it producing any fruit? The fruit of the Christian is both a manner of the person. Who he is is the fruit of the Spirit coming forth in his life. Is he growing in love and joy and peace and suffering long with those that do him harm? Is he growing from a a harsh, angry person or a bitter person or an edgy, angular person that he came into this world with, kind of a, a rough or gruff or whatever that is underneath the surface of your heart in which we all have in the flesh, is he growing from there to more meekness and mildness and gentleness and goodness? Is he growing from a negative to a, a more faithful, trusting God with his life kind of person? Is he growing from a more just controlled by fears to a, a progressiveness in trusting his providence, God's providence? in his life is there fruit is there progress in your character is there progress in your life as paul would tell young timothy let your progress be evident unto all but there's also another aspect of a fruitfulness and that is your how you live your life your conduct your conversation your christian service for the kingdom how you spend your time What interest do you have? Is your interest truly in the kingdom? Or is every time you get involved, because of some kind of emotional guilt trip that you have, like the the shallow ground, is there true, genuine interest in your soul, in your heart? Do you love what God loves? Are you interested in what He's interested in? Do you hate what He hates? Are you always justifying or making excuses for things that you want to do? Do you truly relish worship in the presence of God? Are you serving the church? Are you engaged in the one anothering as expressions of love, not as just mere duty bound? But do you love what God loves? 
Do you sacrifice for what God sacrifices for? Do you disdain what God hates? Is there progress with your life in the Spirit? As we come to the conclusion of the parable, there's a lot of things that we can think about and apply. But only the fruit-bearing plant is that which is truly Christ's. But albeit, even if we are truly here in Christ today, there's a lot of competition for our soul. A lot of things that are wrestling for our productivity in the kingdom. And as one author would write a book about Christian, don't waste your life, and how much there is to waste our life. When you go to the place where you're nearing your death, can you look back upon it and know that without a lot of regret, we're all going to have some regret, but that you've been fruitful, that you've done for the Lord what He's called you to do. As Paul would at the end of his book of Colossians, now say to Tychicus, take heed to your ministry that you fulfill it. These kingdom parables will help us to understand the nature of the kingdom. But along the way, there will be exhortations to us to apply. May we be faithful to keep our eyes upon Christ, to be rooted in Him, to love what He loves, to hate what He hates, and to be engaged in the activity of God through His people in this world. Let's pray. Our Father, it is our great desire to be fruitful people. Lord, as I look upon how short life is, there's already so many regrets as we look back upon how much time we've wasted and not spent in productive kingdom work and fruitfulness. But we know, Lord, that the fruitfulness of a true Christian will be the work of the Spirit working in us and through us to do of your good will and pleasure. May we yield to the work of the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and walk in the light and walk in love. And that you would use us to bring forth a harvest of spiritual fruit from our lives, a hundredfold, sixty and thirty. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here today whose life truly is not that which is one that is producing the fruit of the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of His God in Him, that You would work in that heart and that You would change this heart. We pray, Lord, that the power of the Holy Spirit would, in His own way, His own unique way, apply this message to each one of us and square us up with the truth of the Scripture as the plumb line has been run across the the area of our hearts, we pray that you would apply this to us, that we would be about the kingdom and keeping you and the kingdom and your righteousness, the priority of our lives. And with that, all of the cares and the riches and deceitfulness of this world will have its, its place in a shadow that does not compete with the greater things of life. Lord, help us to lay up for ourselves the treasures in heaven where nothing can destroy and give us the vision of glory this day. In Jesus' name, amen.